So anyways, uh, with that, let me introduce Nate. We call him the red-haired spark plug of the ministry. And he's always got something to say. He always has 19 million ideas that you've never thought of before. And uh, anyways, he has a lot of good things to share. He's grown a lot since he was a freshman in college, I can dare say. And uh, he's married, actually, and has two little girls uh, that love to play with all the strangers like me. And I go over to visit. Uh, his little dog is running around here. And uh, anyways, Nate has a lot of good things to say. And I've learned a lot from him. I'm sure most of you have. He's a great team player in the ministry. And he's focused, really, on the Word of God and the Great Commission. So anyways, let's give Nate a hand. <laughs> Wow, thank you, Russ. All right, I'm going to try and not go forever tonight, and I want to hit a big topic, and I have a lot of notes, as always, so I'm going to hit it pretty hard and fast. If you've ever heard me speak, that is definitely the way I usually do it. So if that's not your style, I just pray that you would get something out of it. Don't try to take notes on every single word that I say. I'm going to share a lot of scripture tonight because I really want you to get what God's Word says a lot more than just my opinions. And we're going to try and do it all in about the next 35 to 40 minutes, something like that. We're going to be talking about seven steps to immunity from temptation. Got that? And that is my promise to you, and this is a big promise, that if you can apply these seven steps or take these seven steps, you will be immune to temptation. And anytime temptation finds a hold in your life, you'll be able to trace it back to one of these steps that hasn't been taken. All right? It's a bold claim, but I think you'll find that it's very true from Scripture. But before we even get started, I wanted to ask you a very important question. And that is, do you even want to be like Jesus? A lot of us, that might be a real natural thing to say yes to, and I'm really happy for that. But I've definitely talked to people in the past, in the last seven and a half years of full-time ministry, and before that in different aspects of ministry, that kind of wanted victory, but kind of also really liked their sin, right? And weren't too sure they wanted to be like Jesus, now, these steps don't mean anything until I get to that heart place of saying, I really desperately want to be like Jesus. I want Him to make me a whole lot like Himself. So I wanted to start by asking, do you want to be like Jesus, and do you want to beat temptation and sin? Right? Do you want to beat temptation and sin? And if you say yes to those two questions, I'm convinced you'll find victory if you apply these seven steps. If you can't say yes to those two questions, I'm going to start with the hardest verse of the entire night right off the bat. Get the hard stuff out of the way early, right? And it's 2 Corinthians 13.5, and it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And what's happening here is, if I can't answer yes to those two questions... If I'm saying, I don't know if I really want to be like Jesus, I have to evaluate and say, have I truly surrendered my life to him in the first place? If I have no desire to let him have control of my life, my perspective, my desires are showing me he might not really be in charge. And there might need to be a step that I need to take with him, which goes back to the very beginning of making him my Lord and Savior, right? But if you've done that, you are in the faith, and I trust you want to be like Jesus. And I trust that you are striving to be like him by following some of these steps. So you guys, too many people are turning away from Christ because of hypocritical Christians. In fact, most people say that is the number one reason that they don't trust Christ. Because of hypocritical Christians that they see. 
We are far past the time of tolerating hypocrisy in our own lives, guys. We can't do it any longer. We can't say that sin is okay. It's not that big a deal. Right now, Aaron and I are watching the destruction of a family very close to ours where precious little children are being drugged through the mud because of sin in people's lives that they do not desire to give to God. And we are seeing so much pain and so much hurt. And what I'm saying, guys, is it's far past the time to say enough is enough. In our lives, we're going to follow God. Do you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 saying, if God is God, follow him. That's the call, is if God is your God, if you've made him your Lord and Savior, I'm begging you to follow him. Bill Bright put it this way. He said, there are no happy, disobedient Christians. Get this. There are no happy, disobedient Christians, and there are no unhappy, obedient Christians. Right? Did you get that? There are no happy, disobedient Christians, and there are no unhappy, obedient Christians. If you are following Christ, you will be the most satisfied person alive. You will be satisfied internally in a way that nothing in the world could satisfy you. Now, as his followers, if you are desiring to be like Jesus, remember that you are called to be like Jesus. In Matthew 5, we're commanded, be perfect, therefore, as your Father is perfect. That's a very tall order, a very hard command it might seem. In 1 John 3, 3, we're told everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope that we have in Christ, the work that he's doing in our life, is transforming us more and more into his character, guys. So purity defined, and I'm not going to make this talk all about purity, but I thought it was important to at least touch on it as we get started on seven steps to immunity from temptation. Purity defined in the Greek is pure from defilement and carnality, not contaminated and clean, okay? Don't you want to be clean? Don't you want to be uncontaminated? Don't you want to be pure from carnality and fleshly desires that seem to drive masculinity in our society? I want to be free from those things. Purity is a description of how close we measure up to the perfect standard, our Father, who is God. He is perfect. And if I'm impure, it means that I'm deviating from His perfect standard, right? So, it is impossible for perfection and imperfection to exist together and perfection to still be perfect. That doesn't happen. That's why what Jesus did at the cross is so important. And as we begin this talk, I have to share the gospel and what that means. Because it's the only way that we can ever have that relationship with Him, and experience that perfection in Him. The Bible says that each one of us are sinful. We've heard about that a lot this week. We know that. Fortunately for us, God loves us so much in spite of our sin. The Bible says that His love for us is everlasting, that His thoughts for us outnumber the sand of the seas. That's how much He loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of our junk. And He loved us so much that He couldn't tolerate our separation from Himself. And He sent Jesus, God in human flesh, to live a perfect life on this earth and to die for all of our sins. To take those on the cross. The Bible says literally nailing our sins to the cross. Right? So that anyone that would put their trust in Him, Scripture says in John, would have the right to be His children. We come into His family. He sees us as perfect through Jesus. In fact, Hebrews 10 says, By one offering He is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The second you have put your trust in Him, He perfects you forever in a spiritual sense. Your sanctification is continuing, but He saves you from those sins. He transfers you from death into life at that instant. That's what happens when you come to Him as you are and say, Jesus, I am putting my trust in, in You. Be my Savior and my Lord. So before we go any further, if you've never taken that step, I'm going to ask you to take that tonight. 
not here, not now, not publicly. After this talk, we're going to have some alone time with God in praise. Maybe grab somebody, pray with them, or just get alone with God and ask Him to become your Savior and Lord and to come into your life. And then tell one of us about it so we can pray with you. So now, assuming that you have that relationship with God by grace through faith, Scripture says that we can relate to Him based on His perfection, not our own, because we're not perfect. But we relate to Him based on His perfect performance. But we're also called to continually be becoming more and more like Him. Back to 1 John 3, we talked about it a minute ago. 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. See that purifying that we are in the process of, that purification, becoming more like Him, it all starts with salvation, guys. And that hope that we have in Him purifies us day to day. Now, Scripture tells us about purity. I'm going to summarize a few Scripture verses here. It says, Become pure and blameless. Be purified through your hope in Christ. Keep a pure devotion to Christ. Call on the Lord from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart. Think about what is pure. Have pure wisdom from heaven. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that's a promise we're going to close on about the pure in heart seeing God. And it's something that we can look forward to as we follow Him in this process of beating temptation and sin. So becoming like Him begins with beating temptation and sin. Can I get the whiteboard up, Russ? Okay. So sin owns most Christian men. Most Christian men are living lives of complete failure and defeat, completely owned by sin. It's as if they had no power whatsoever to beat it in the first place. You've probably felt like that before. Remember Paul in Romans 7 discussing this masculine fight with sin, saying the good that I want to do I never end up doing, and the bad that I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. And a lot of times we've all found ourselves in a very similar situation. Fortunately, Paul doesn't leave it there, right? He concludes that passage saying, thanks be to Jesus, right? And then goes into the next passage saying that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You guys, through him, we have power to beat that sin cycle. But the reality is that until he really gets control of our lives, we'll be stuck in that sin cycle. So sin owns most Christian men. Sin, again... Kyle, Gordy, both of you guys mentioned this this morning, is missing the mark, Scripture tells us in Romans 3.23, and it's ultimately unbelief. Jesus said sin is unbelief in me. Now, a lot of Christian men aren't going to say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus, but sin is saying, I'm right and he's wrong, practically. If he says my way is best and I choose something other than his way, I'm not believing his way is best. In other words, I have unbelief in him. Right? So sin is ultimately what Jesus said in John 16, unbelief in him. There are different sins. There are sins of omission, and there are sins of commission. Commission might be porn. Things that we do that we should not do, right? Porn, lust, arguing, fighting, gossiping, those types of sins of commission. There are also sins of omission, though, and we tend to forget those. We tend to maybe judge ourselves based on what things we're not doing. And we forget about the things that we should be doing that we're not. Things like sharing our faith, making disciples. Things like teaching those around us to grow in their faith. 
There are a whole lot of things, and sometimes it's almost overwhelming to think of all that needs to be done, and we can't do it. It's like Kyle said, my view of sin is so large, it's almost, I can't bear underneath it, right? It's so huge. So with that terrible picture in mind, I want to paint a good picture for you. And this is something that I hope is encouraging. It's in our discipleship packet, so some of you students that have been through that are going to recognize this. And I think this is important to get. Somebody that's been through the discipleship packet, define relationship for me. Uh, you've accepted Christ in your life, and it's dependent on Jesus Christ. Okay, good. So you've accepted Christ in, into your life, and John 1.12 says about that, you, be, you have the right to become his children, right? So what's this relationship, Brandon? Yeah, he's your father. This is your connection to God. Does that make sense? He's your father, you're his son. It's a connection. It's a relationship. Right? If you say, how are you related to God? You'd say, I'm his son. He's my father. Now, what's your fellowship, for those of you that have been through the packet, or anyone else? What did you say? What is your fellowship? How is that different than your relationship with God? Is it how you follow him? That's a good way to put it. How do you spend time with him? How do you spend time with him? I'm going to put one word, but both those are important. It's your interaction with God. <clears throat> It's your intimacy with God. It's how you follow Him. It's how you talk with Him. It's your communication. It's your intimacy with God. Relationship, fellowship. What's my relationship to my wife? I'm her husband. She's my wife. What's my fellowship with my wife? My, my communication, my interaction, sex. Okay, in a men's retreat, guys, God is not against sex. Just a picture. Sex is awesome in marriage. And as we talk about sin, we can't help but think about sexual sin, which traps so many men. And it's a, a beautiful thing, the sex relationship that God has in marriage. Read Proverbs 5 for more on that. But anyway, all that would be parts of fellowship, right? Well, the marriage relationship would be our relationship, or our connection. Okay, now here's sin. And then Kyle this morning talked about confession. So did Russ. 1 John 1, 9. If I confess... He's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Now, when you sin, let's take it back to my relationship with my wife. Let's say I get home from the retreat and I just cuss her out, okay? I'm not going to do that, but let's say I did. Is she still my wife? Yes. Am I still her husband? Yes. So how did that affect our relationship? No change, right? Does that make sense? Our connection is still the same. What's that going to do to our fellowship? <laughs> it's going to be hindered. Doghouse, right? Hindered. Okay, now if I confess and say, Aaron, I love you. I'm so sorry for cussing you out just now. How does that affect our relationship? No change, right? It's not like, okay, now you're my husband again. Oh, no, now you're not again. Oh, now you are again. Right? No change. Right? What about our fellowship? Yeah, restored. I'll put the word restored there. Strengthen. Brandon, that's a good adjective too. Okay, guys. Now, when, when we relate to God... Yeah, that's a different story, but good point. Yeah, but if I keep over here, more than over here, over time, 
that's going to work itself out. Now, in my relationship with God, guys, when I fall, my relationship with Him as His Son, Him being my Father, is not dependent on my perfect actions every day. Again, what does it say in John 1? To as many as believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Not to as many as believed in His name and didn't sin ever again. Right? See, being His child isn't dependent on a perfect performance. And when I confess... That passage in 1 John 1, 9 saying that he'll forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness, that doesn't talk about relationship. That whole passage is talking about fellowship from verse 5 on. And that's the reality is it's talking about my fellowship with God. So I want you to understand some security that you have as we talk about these issues. C.S. Lewis did put it this way. It says, love can tolerate sin in its beloved, right? But it cannot stop willing its removal. Did you get that? So you can say, I love you, and I can accept you even though you have that sin. Dylan, I don't like that part in your life, but I can accept you the way you are. Let's say, I'm just making that up. I don't have anything, right? But at the same time, if I really love you, I'm going to want to see you change, right? And that's how it is with God and us. He accepts you as his child, yet he is passionate about seeing you become Christ-like in your daily actions, right? And in your character, so that is what we mean when we talk about relationship and fellowship, and I hope that's an encouraging perspective as we get into a lot of this today. Now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what we call the sin cycle as well, because you're going to recognize this cycle from your own life, from the beginning of Scripture and all the way through, you'll see it. Remember how our story fits into his story? Well, we're going to see our sin cycle fitting in his story because we've seen it in his story a lot of different times. In fact, starting with Genesis 3. James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desires conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So what happens there? What's the progression? You guys? First one. Desires, yeah. Okay, desires. Then what? Temptation. Okay, then, I'm going to do this a little smaller. So we have desire, and this is going to be important. You might write this down. Desire, temptation, I'm just going to put tempt, sin, death. Death would be its consequences, right, in our lives. Romans 6.23 again. And practically in the lives of those all around us, like Kyle talked about, like we're seeing in this, these friends of ours, Okay, now that's the first part of the sin cycle described in James 1, 14 through 15. We're going to get back to this. Just a side note, a lot of men try to fight temptation where? At the level of temptation, right? Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but that doesn't work. That's why it keeps happening, because we're not dealing with the root. Okay? Now, this cycle goes further, though. What happens next? We can go one of two different ways. Number one, or number two. Okay, write this down if you're taking notes, because this is going to be important. And you can see this whole cycle in Genesis 3, by the way. The whole thing is right there in front of us. Okay, once we get to this aspect of sin, the Holy Spirit does what? He convicts us right here. So I'm going to put this right here. Conviction. Okay, now when you sense the Holy Spirit's conviction, 
Isn't it kind of hard to ignore him? (laughs) Thank God. He is so good at convicting us and letting us know. When I sense that, I can run from God, hiding in darkness. So run away from God. Desire, temptation, sin, the results of sin, death, conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. Now I can run away from God, hiding, rationalizing my sin, believing a lie, resulting in bondage and isolation from God and others. 1 John 1, 5 talks not just about my fellowship with God, but my fellowship with my brothers as well. Okay? And when we we sin, usually the last thing we want to do is be in a room full of Christians, right? We want to get away. Okay, the opposite of that, though, we can run to God. Instead of hiding, I walk in the light. Again, 1 John 1. Instead of rationalizing my sin, I'm confessing my sin. I'm believing truth, not a lie. What did Jesus say about the truth? It'll set you free. So instead of bondage, I experience what? Freedom. And then what? With God and others. Fellowship with God and others. Joy, peace, all that. Yeah. You guys see those two different avenues that we can take when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin? I can run away from God, hiding, rationalizing my sin, believing a lie, experiencing bondage and isolation from God and others. Or I can run to God, walking in the light, confessing that sin, believing God's truth, experiencing freedom and fellowship with God and others. That's the sin cycle. This is what happened in Genesis 3. Eve desired the fruit, was tempted by it, then sinned and ate it. That's all in verse 6. It says it started with desire. She thought it looked delicious, right? She felt instant conviction about that sin. So did Adam, who followed her into it, right? But then they hid from God. That was in verse 7. They hid from God in verse 8. Then they rationalized their sin. Adam blames Eve in verse 12. Eve blames the serpent in verse 13. So they're rationalizing. They're not believing the truth. They're experiencing isolation from God. They're experiencing a break in fellowship with each other, but they're pointing the finger. Do you see that cycle starting from the very beginning? And we see the same cycle in our lives today. Now, as we talk, my encouragement is that we can beat this cycle. We can beat it right here at the level of desire. Okay? 
Because that's where it has to get beat if we want to beat it at all. And we've got to quit trying to beat it here. And we've got to quit trying to beat it here. There, there's a time and a place to fight it at those levels. But if we really want victory over sin, it goes right back to the roots. Beating it at the level of desire. Okay, now as we talk about that running aspect, that's the natural human response. We don't like vulnerability, right? But there's a problem with that. Hebrews 4 tells us that nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Kind of like Gordy was saying, there's going to be a movie reel. He sees it all, guys. He sees it all. Yet he has compassion on you. Remember Jesus when he looked at the crowds and he saw that they are helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, yet he had compassion on them. And it's the same way with us even when we are in our sin, guys. So my encouragement is to realize that he has compassion on you and instead of running from him, run to him. Even if you've had to run to him after that same sin a hundred times today, run to him again. Because that's the only chance that we're ever going to have for victory over this set, uh, over this stuff, guys. So, in Him and through Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Ephesians three twelve. See, as I yeah, just just make sure I'm understanding. You're putting the conviction piece after death. Okay, that's just kind of like let's do this right here. Let's say sin and conviction. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to put death as a product of sin out here. So maybe not a step in the process. Does that make sin? Sin always causes death. In my life, and others' lives, all around me. There are consequences to sin. Physical consequences, spiritual consequences, relational consequences. So as soon as I sin, though, there is that conviction of the Holy Spirit instantly. Uh, We don't have to see that only after we see the death that it causes. So it's both those things. Okay, so God's plan, love God, obey God, and see God do immeasurably more than you can imagine or ask. Did you get that? This is the cycle. God's plan is something totally different than this. God's plan is that my desire right here would be for Him. Desire and love Him. Okay, we're going to get to that in a minute. But if I'm desiring and loving God, what happens? John 14, 15, I obey Him. Somebody mentioned that same verse this weekend. If I obey him, what happens? Does he fall short? No. Fall on his face? Not come through? No. no, when you obey him, what happens? Everything is given to you. He comes through, and Ephesians 3 actually says he does immeasurably more than we can imagine or ask. He blows our minds with his faithfulness as we walk in obedience to him. Is that a fun life to live? That's a good life to live. Okay, what's the opposite of that, though? The opposite of that is, instead of loving God, I do it my own way. I disobey Him. What's the product of that? Bad. <laughs> Bad. Miserable. Black. Torture. It's not fun. Maybe sin is fun for a little while, but it's never satisfying. And when I become unsatisfied, what do most Christian men do? How could God do this to me? <laughs> my life is so terrible, right? I can't believe how God could do this to poor little innocent me. Right? Not realizing all along, it's not God. It's me that went the wrong way. Right? Instead of obeying Him and experiencing the fruit of that, I did it my own way and experienced the fruit of my own way, which is never good. Okay, so God's plan is that I would say, I love you, God, I'm going to obey you, God, and then I'm going to experience all that God has as a result of obeying Him. So how do we fight temptation, guys? How do we fight temptation? First, remember Jesus' example. There are two ways to fight temptation. 
I said there's a time and a place to fight it once it happens. Okay? I'm going to call that the reactive way to fight temptation. Boom, I got tempted. Now I got to react. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? Because we're going to get tempted. And there's a reactive way to fight it once I'm in the situation, once I'm in the moment. I reactively fight that temptation. Walk away. Or Walk away. Pull a Joseph, right? Get, get out of there. <laughs> okay, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. See, he was without sin, guys. And he lived this example for each of us that we can follow. Right? Just as a note, there's no sin on this earth that anybody's ever been tempted with that Jesus wasn't tempted with. I think it's easy for us to say he's been tempted in every way just like us, but of course he wasn't tempted with murder. Of course he wasn't tempted with homosexuality. Did you guys ever think of that? Jesus had same-sex attraction issues. It's kind of a weird thing to think, right? Bob, you deal with guys that, that you counsel guys that deal with this. Jesus was tempted just like they are. And he was tempted like every one of us in any way that we ever have been. He was tempted that way, yet without sin. Right? Without sin. He lived that example for us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's the reactive way. When you're tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it, okay? So finding that way and standing up under it can seem difficult, but knowing that he's provided that way is an important first step, right? And sometimes that might be as simple as changing the situation. In Matthew 5, we'll discuss this in a minute, it's cutting off the hand that causes me to sin, right? It's being able to remove a pitfall before I fall in the pitfall. Austin and I... We have a, an accountability relationship, and we've decided that if ever there's a situation where a girl wants to talk to us one-on-one -on -one in a compromising situation, like if they corner us, because we're never going to go into that situation to talk to someone, but for example, you're alone kind of in a per certain part of the room, and somebody walks up to you and starts talking, right? And you need to get out of that situation before it becomes a potentially compromising situation. We are going to say, and we've agreed at this, I would love to talk, but there's a phone call that I have to make right now at 8.05, whatever time it happens to be. That phone call, coincidentally, is to my accountability partner, right? It's an excuse. It's a way out of that situation. <laughs> I have a hard phone call that I can't miss, <laughs> so I better step out and do that. Does that make sense, guys? Finding a way out when I'm in that temptation. That's the reactive way to fight temptation. So there's an obvious time and place for that. But that should really only be secondary to the first way, the proactive way of fighting temptation, okay? So that's the reactive way of temptation. You get tempted, you do everything you can to stand up under it. Now the proactive way, I think, should consume 90 plus percent of our temptation fighting energy. Because I'm convinced these seven steps in the proactive method will guard us from temptation. Now going back to this James 1 cycle that we see, desire, temptation, sin, conviction. If I want to stop being tempted, what needs to change? Your mind. And ultimately more than that, because I'm not tempted to think too much about chemistry. What's that? Your desires. Your desires have got to change, right? Okay, if your desire 
is simply for sex. Are you going to be tempted by porn? Yes. If your desire is for a lifelong marriage, growing in intimacy with the woman that God made you to live the rest of your life with, including a sexual relationship with her, how tempting does porn become? Does that make sense? See, because my desire isn't just for this action, but it's for a person, my wife. It's for a relationship with her. And when that's my desire, temptation is what? It's gone in that area. At least 98% of it is gone, right? Because God has changed the desire and temptation doesn't have anything left to work with. So I could spend the rest of my life just waiting for a desire to pop up and, or a temptation to pop up and then fighting like crazy and failing half the time. Or I could let God change my heart, right? Like God changed my desire so temptation has nothing to work with. So it goes back to my heart. And in case you didn't know, you have an evil heart. <laughs> a really bad one. Matthew 15, 8 says, We often honor God with our lips while our hearts are far from Him. Have you ever been there where you feel guilty singing the songs that we sang and praised tonight? I can't even sing that with a clear conscience because I know my heart, right? Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his what? Heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. See, if I want to stop being tempted and falling into sin, my heart has got to change. My desires have got to change. And when my heart changes, that stuff has nothing on me. It's gone. At least 90 plus percent of it. And that last 5%, I can stand up under. Right? I can reactively fight that. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Last spring, I was riding the chairlift here with a friend of ours, with Craig, and we were sharing Christ with almost every single person we rode the lift with. And this girl gets on, and we're just working through what we call the sound barriers, and I asked her what she thought about this and that, and it got back to this issue of morality. What do you think is right and wrong? And she said, whatever feels good is how you know what's right or wrong. And I said, what about men that rape little girls because it feels good? And she said, well, that, of course, would be wrong. And I said, not according to your philosophy. Not according to your philosophy, it wouldn't be wrong. Our hearts are desperately evil, guys. They're absolutely disgusting, right? My desires are terrible. So whatever you do, don't follow your heart. <laughs> Throw that one in the trash can because your, 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 <laughs> your heart is a fart, right? Your heart is going to screw you up. It will destroy your marriage, I promise you. It will destroy your parenting, I promise you. If there's anything I've learned in three and a half years of parenting, it's that your selfishness cannot survive, right? Being woken up all hours of the night, right, Michael? Right? No, you don't have kids yet, right? Who was it that was just, Matt, you were telling me about that. Up the other day at 5 a.m., your selfishness is taking a hit, right? Your selfishness is taking a hit. Don't follow your heart. You're going to be a terrible dad if you do. You'll be a terrible husband if you do. Follow Jesus' heart, right? Follow Jesus' heart, and you're not going to be a terrible husband or dad. Now, about your desires. Just get this, because a lot of times we live in America, which says the American dream is be happy, right? Pursue happiness. Get what you want. Do what you want. And I'm not condemning any aspect of that in its entirety, right? Because we live in a great country with great freedoms, and I've lived in countries that don't have those freedoms, and it's not fun. But guys, here's the... The issue. Scripture tells you that living for your own selfish desires results in one, being dead even while you yet live. Living for my desires 
I will be dead even while I yet live. Yet so often as Christians, we cultivate our desires and then wonder why we're falling into temptation and sin. Not realizing that he's called me to die to those desires and to put him first. My desires result in having a form of godliness but denying its power, practically stopping God's power in my life when I live for my desires. My desires plunge me into ruin and destruction, pierce me through with many griefs, choke God's word, making it unfruitful in my life, trap me, making me unhappy. Scripture literally says your desires make you unhappy. They destroy your relationships. You don't know that friendship... Get this. Scripture says that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Those desires result in hatred towards God, right? So do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does come not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Right? If I'm cultivating those desires, I and the world are passing away in sin and temptation. While if I'm doing the will of God, letting him cultivate his heart in me, I will live forever the materialistic, selfish ambition fostered by the American dream is in direct conflict with Christ in your life. And it leaves me empty every single time. It's kind of like seawater. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but when somebody's drowning in the ocean, not drowning in the ocean, when they're lost at sea and trying to survive and they're dehydrating in the ocean, I guess I should say, their temptation is to drink the seawater, right? Because it looks like it would satisfy their thirst. But what happens when they drink that seawater is it actually dehydrates them even worse, right? And it ends up killing them. They end up becoming delusional and dying. And this is the same way. We're in this world, we have these desires, and we try to satisfy those with everything but what will satisfy those desires. And Jeremiah, it says that we've replaced the cisterns that he's given us with living water with cisterns that don't even hold water. And we're trying to be satisfied by those. And what's happening is we're becoming even less satisfied and delusional and falling into death, literally. Just like in the seawater analogy. Instead of saying, there's one thing only that will satisfy my desires, that's Jesus himself. And when I get to that point of letting him satisfy me fully, the way I was made to be satisfied, it's at that very moment, guys, that desire is changed and temptation is gone. It has nothing to work with. If your greatest desire is Jesus, what will tempt you? More time with Jesus? <laughs> That's terrible. More time in the word? Oh, don't say that. More time in prayer? Right? Josh, every time I see Josh, he's like, hey guys, let's go pray. Right? <laughs> he's being tempted to pray all the time. That's the kind of temptation I want to struggle with. Okay? John 6.35, Jesus promises that if we come to him, we'll never hunger or thirst again. Yet somehow we're going everywhere but him and always coming up hungry and thirsty, right? St. Augustine put it this way, Almighty God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. So lead us by your Spirit, that in this life we may live to your glory, and in the life to come enjoy you forever. Isn't that where you want to be, right? My heart is restless till it finds rest in you. Nothing else in this world satisfies. But if I can get to this point of letting him become my desire... Temptation is lost. It has nothing to do with me, right? So diagnosing my heart's condition. I want you to do a little inventory here to diagnose where your heart is at. Because if you're struggling with temptation, you can trace it back to your heart. So do a little bit of self-analysis here, a little bit of introspection to see where your heart is really at. And the Bible tells us how to do this. I don't have to do it. 
Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what are we speaking about? Because what you're speaking about is what's in your heart. Right? So just think about it for a second. What am I speaking about? That's going to tell you a lot about what's in your heart. Right? You know what? When I did this, I found out I speak a lot more about ministry than God. I thought, man, there's a big place where ministry is a little bit of an idol in my life. That's kind of scary. You'd think that that wouldn't be possible, but it is. He needs to be everything. Jesus first. It's like what Jesus says. I mean, it's like what Russ says. Everything in my personal life has to revolve around Jesus Christ. Everything in my ministry life has to revolve around the Great Commission. Sometimes I make everything in my personal life revolve around the Great Commission, and when I get there, it's not good. It has to revolve around Jesus, guys. So what do you speak about? That's the first part of the test. There's another one. Number two, Proverbs 27, 19 says life reflects your heart. What your life looks like, that's a reflection of your heart. So your actions, guys, your schedule, what you do, your priorities, that also is a reflection of what's in your heart. So think about what do I talk about and what do I prioritize and do. Those two things will show you a whole lot about what's inside your heart. And it will probably tell you a whole lot about why you're getting tempted and falling into sin in different areas. So letting God change your heart, this is the crux of what we're talking about right now in the promised seven steps to immunity from temptation. Ezekiel 36, 26, God promises, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that what you want? For God to change your heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh that loves him. Not a hard heart, but a soft heart towards him. That's what I desperately want. I pray that more every day than I've ever prayed it in my life. I'm not joking. Every night when Aaron and I pray together, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of how much I do not desire God and how much I want to desire him more. It's like Kyle said, the older you get, you see your sin so much greater and you realize, man, I really want God. That's it. And I don't want him enough at the same time, right? Does that make sense? He wants to change my heart and to give me a heart of flesh, a soft heart towards him. Jeremiah 24, 7 and 32, 39 says, I will give them a new heart to know me, that I am the Lord, they will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Don't you want to return to God with all your heart, right? I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and for the good of their children after them. See, as my heart changes, I, my family, all reap the benefits of that as it becomes single-heartedly focused on him. So beating that sin cycle requires a new heart and the corresponding new desires of that new, soft, Christ-like heart. So step number one to becoming immune to temptation and sin, your heart will change, because that's what has to happen if I want to beat temptation before it even starts. Your heart will change as you love him in response to his love. Remember 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us? See, as I respond to his love, I start to love him because I am loved by him. And that starts to change my heart. In fact, Romans 2, 4 says it's his kindness that draws me to repentance. Repentance being a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of living that all starts with recognizing how kind and loving he is to me. That ultimately starts with salvation, responding to that kindness by trusting him as Savior and Lord. So that's the first step. But it continues in growth, learning to love him more every single day and desiring to love him more every single day. So your heart will change as you love him in response to his love. Mark 12.30 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And I can't say I'm there. But I want to be there, don't you? All my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, that's how I want to love God. And this is a promise and something you can take to the bank. (laughs) When we get there, temptation has nothing on us. If I'm loving Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's nothing I can be tempted with, right? He's consuming my desires. He's it. And when I get there, I'll experience immunity to temptation and sin. Step number two, your heart will change as you delight in Him. Psalm 37.4 says, delight in Him, and He will give you the desires of your heart. He will not only give you what you desire, but He'll change the desires you have and then meet those with the desires that He has for you. Does that make sense? He'll change your heart, He'll change your desires, and then He'll meet those desires. What's that? Yes, Psalm 37.4. Oh, your heart will change as you delight in Him. So your heart will change as you love Him in response to His love. Then your heart will change as you delight in Him. So love Him. Can I erase this right here? Put this down. If you guys didn't get that sin cycle, come talk to me and, and get it, because I think it's, it's uh, pretty important. Okay. So one, as you love Him. And love is different than delighting myself in Him and desiring Him. Right? Love is unconditionally putting somebody else above myself. You can do that without a whole lot of desire. You can say, I'm going I'm to obey you simply by faith, God, and that's love. <laughs> Even if you don't feel it, but you're doing it by faith, that's love like, like love has never been. That is true love, right? But I should hopefully follow that up with desiring him and delighting myself in him. What does it mean to delight yourself in God? To enjoy Him, guys. To just take time to enjoy God. Maybe write a list of things you're thankful for. That'll create some enjoyment of God. To realize all that I have, instead of being upset about all that I don't have. Right? All these people, on a side note, Occupy movement, right? They're protesting, being the 99%, etc. Not realizing that in the world's perspective, they're the 1%. Does that make sense? We're so convinced of what we don't have, but so rarely do we thank God for what we do have, guys. And the second I get that thankful attitude, I start to delight in Him, I think. Okay, take every thought captive, making it obedient to Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Focus your thoughts on Him. And seek first His kingdom, knowing that everything else comes after that. If I delight myself in Him, it all comes after that. Step number three, your heart will change as you're transformed by His Word. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right? So three, I've got to put his word in my heart if I want to start having a changed heart. Remember in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, my thoughts are not like your thoughts and my ways are not like your ways. We are on very different footings. We are not the same at all. If I want to act like Jesus, I first got to start thinking like Jesus. Right? I've got to get his word in my heart before I'm ever going to have a hope at beating temptation and sin. So my heart changes as I get his word in my heart. And that's what David said. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I won't sin against you. Right? So I'd encourage you, start reading God's word. Start studying God's word. Start meditating on God's word. Start memorizing God's word. Start sharing God's word with others, guys. And more importantly than any of that, as all that has to happen, but we've got to apply God's word as well. Otherwise, the rest of that process doesn't mean anything. But the second I start following that and hiding his word in my heart, guys, 
my heart gets transformed. Step number four, your heart will change as you die to your old self, including your old evil heart. So there's some death that has to happen. I can't just pick up at that desire level and add God on top of it. Does that make sense? I can't just say, well, I have an evil heart that desires to have sex with whatever random woman walks by, right? To have whatever random car drives by. To have whatever house I happen to drive by. I have this evil heart. And then on top of that, I'm just going to put God, right? Now, that evil heart has to die. And it's not fun, right? I think it was Tozer that said, that said, let me get this right. He said, we all want salvation, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. Right? We insist that he do all the dying. I don't want to die. Why, why does our heart, because mine does it an awful lot. <laughs> mine does it an awful lot too. It, it, um, it's human nature to not want to die, girl, to not want to surrender. because you're a human being in a fallen world right, with a heart that's desperately evil and fallen, that desperately needs Jesus to change it. And we're all in that same boat, and I thank you, Kurt, for being the most honest guy in the room, right? Because we're all there, and we need Jesus to change it from the inside. Anybody else second that? <laughs> I've been dealing with this for a long time and I'm getting sick and tired of it. <laughs> right? I'm getting sick and tired of it. This this heart needs to change right now. Here's the deal, and Kurt, we can talk more, but you're not, I want to encourage you with this, you're not weird. If anything, you're very normal, right? And God has to replace our hearts with his heart, and that's what he promised to do. And I think following these steps, loving him, desiring him, getting his word in my heart, for dying to my heart, actually, I'm going to not put it in passive words. I'm going to put Killing my heart. Okay? My heart needs to die, guys. And here's the way Jesus puts it. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's some crucifixion that has to take place. I have to die on a cross, and it might take a long time, but I have to die to those desires. On a side note, and I'm not making this talk about fasting and things like that, but this is one reason fasting is good. Because it's you saying... Flesh, you're going to die, <laughs> and you're going to obey me. <laughs> you're going to obey God. 
You're not going to do what you want to do. You're going to do what I'm telling you to do in line with Scripture. Right? So sometimes we think fasting is all about getting God to do something, which is not the case. Right? Prayer is co-laboring with God according to His will, not trying to come up with a better will that God didn't see until I you know, figured it out for Him. That's not the concept. The concept is, I'm getting on his page, not he's getting on my page, right? But when I fast, I am saying no to my flesh and letting it die. I'm taking up that cross daily and following him. Jeremiah 4.4 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and you people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil that you've done. Burn with no one to quench it. Obviously speaking from an Old Testament, Old Covenant perspective. We do live in grace. I don't want you to think otherwise. But still, my heart needs to be circumcised. And circumcision doesn't feel good, right? <laughs> Glad they do it when you're a baby so you don't remember. <laughs> but you guys, my heart needs to be circumcised. There are things that need to be cut off my heart. And a lot of times in our society, in Christianity, we think grace, grace, grace. And that is true, true, true. It's very true. But sometimes we can almost think, I don't need to cut anything off. In reality, there are things that need to get cut off. There are things that are in direct conflict with God. They're within hatred of God. And God is saying, cut those off and learn to love me. That heart has to die. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, cutting off the hand that causes you to sin. Being able to say, if that thing causes me to sin, I'm going to cut it off. I had a roommate in college that struggled with porn a lot. Okay, And you know what they did? They took their computer and they chucked it out their second story window into the garbage bin below their apartment. <laughs> I told them, why didn't you give me your computer? He goes, I didn't want you to fall. <laughs> but that's cutting off the hand that causes you to sin. Okay, that's cutting off the hand that causes you to sin. So we need to kill our flesh and temptation will die. But if I feed my flesh, I'm going to get tempted to death. I promise you. I need to desire God and that temptation will die. But if I desire my own ambitions, I'm going to get tempted to death. It's that old adage that whatever you feed the most, that's what's going to win. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh-huh. You could put right next to that number four, Romans six. Yes. Okay, I got to go fast. Here, Kurt, let's keep that, write it down. Write it down and let's talk about it afterwards. I'm going to finish this out real quick and we'll get back to it. Okay, so your heart will change, step number five, as you serve him from that place of transformation and sacrifice. So point number three is your heart will change as you're transformed by his word. And point number four is your heart will change as you die to your old self, as you present your body a living sacrifice, right? And now point number five is your heart will change as you serve him from those two places. Romans 12 talks about this, saying, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. See, I'm serving out of humility. And we read later in the chapter, never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Kyle talked about this this morning. 
David's example in 2 Samuel 11, when the kings went off to war, he did not go off to war. He was not serving God. And then he was tempted and sinned. Point number five, after I'm being transformed by his word, after I'm putting my body as a living sacrifice, dying to that heart, five, serve the Lord. I had a pastor once that says, from now on, any couple that's coming to me with marriage problems, you're going to have to give me two current examples of sharing your faith together with somebody that is a non-Christian before you can come and talk to me about your issues. He said, I have a feeling there aren't going to be very many marriage problems in our church. <laughs> Good perspective, right? If you and your wife are a team in ministry serving together, you're going to find you're on the same page and don't have as much to fight about as you thought you had. But it's the same way with my evil heart. If I'm serving God, I'm going to see that thing getting changed. Guys, it's going to get transformed because I'm serving him and I'm getting his heart for the world around me. He's putting a new heart in me as I see what's important to him. I tell the guys, the guys that I work with, if, if you fight to survive, you don't always win, right? In battle, if you go into battle thinking, my goal is just to survive, well, you're probably not going to win the battle, right? You're probably not going to win the battle. But if you go in fighting to win, good chance you're going to survive. Does that make sense? So I encourage them, don't fight to, sur don't, don't fight to survive, right? But fight to win. We should do this. So many times as men, we think, man, if I can just get through the week without looking at porn, that's good enough, right? And God's saying, no, fight to win. Get through the week saying, God, give me somebody that I can share my faith with this week. See, if I start to get that perspective on life, temptation is going to evaporate. In many, many cases, because I'm becoming consumed with his heart rather than my evil heart. <clears throat> Your heart will change, point number six. As you stay committed to fellowship and accountability. James 5.16 says to confess your sins to each other so that you may be what? Heal. Right? Can you repeat it one more time, Nate? Confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed. That's a, paraph a paraphrase. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Okay? I confess my sins to God to be forgiven. I confess my sins to boots to be healed. Does that make sense? See, because it's my brothers and sisters keeping me accountable that helps me experience victory. And me with them as well, right, as we fight this fight together. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another daily as long as it is called the day so that none of you may become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I need you guys and you need me and you need each other so that we don't get hardened by sin, so that we keep that soft heart towards God that we need in order to not get tempted, right? Okay, so fellowship and accountability is key. Finally, seven, and this is huge, and it's what we started the whole thing off with. Your heart will change as you allow the Holy Spirit to work over time. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Spirit, who is the Lord, or from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit working in you is transforming your evil heart into a soft heart. He's the one that's going to give that to you. So seven, I need to be surrendering to the Holy Spirit over time. Cloud and Townsend say grace plus truth over time equals growth, right? So I need to be in God's word, in his grace, over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to see growth. I'm going to see a changed heart. So be patient, guys, because it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. As your heart changes, so too will your desires. 
And that in turn will leave you immune to temptation. So brass tacks, God didn't save you so that you could wallow in failure and sin. I hear people referring to Romans 7 almost as a license to sin sometimes, saying, well, Paul said the good he wants to do, he never ends up doing, and the bad he doesn't want to do, that's what he ends up doing. Yeah, and he also showed the hope of beating that cycle, right? And that's the point. God didn't save us to live in defeat. He saved us to live in victory, to be a light to the people around us that desperately need that, including our wives and kids and families, guys. 1 John 3, 9 and 5, 4, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Guys, God did not save you to keep falling in sin. He saved you to experience more and more victory. But see, that all starts with this transformed heart and this greater desire for him. Romans eight thirty seven says you're more than conquerors. You're not mostly losers and every once in a while you pull out a little victory in the fight with sin. You're more than conquerors in him, guys. God always empowers you to accomplish what he commands you to do. He never says do this and then leaves you without any resources to accomplish that. If he commands you to do it, he empowers you for it. Too much is on the line here for us to keep playing around with sin. And we need to get down to these brass tacks and say, God, I'm sick of my sin like Kurt. So humbly share tonight. God, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. And I want you to change my heart. So what's the result of this? We're going to hear more about this tomorrow. But the result, guys, God's promise. And I started with a hint at this. And I want to encourage you with this as we close. 2 Samuel 22, 27 and Psalm 18, 26 both say, to the pure you show, you show yourself pure. And then in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus himself promises, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Barna, who does all the Christian statistics in a recent survey, said only 8% of Christians, not non-Christians, only 8% of Christians feel like they've ever had a personal encounter with God where they really felt him in a real way, like he was very real in their life. Only 8%. So in this room, maybe six or seven guys, statistically, have ever felt like they connected with God. That's disgusting. But Jesus' promise is as I walk in purity, I will see him. And he will reveal himself to me. So I'm encouraging you that this fight isn't just a, a fight out there. All the victory in the world starts here. And a daily, authentic, and real, life-changing walk with God starts there. That transforms everything else. What to look forward to? The fruit of the Spirit rather than the fruit of the flesh. The abundant life rather than theft death and destruction. These things are so important. My heart's cry is Psalm 86.11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I want that heart that's undivided, that loves him more than anything. Because everything else changes from there. Changes from there. There's no temptation from there. So the bottom line, desire God and you will be untemptable. If you live according to the sinful nature, your mind will be set on what that nature desires. But if you live in accordance with the Spirit, your mind will be set on what the Spirit desires. So clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, 
fits of rage, selfish ambitions, <laughs> dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Right? And I live now with his desires that transform me from the inside out. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Right? It's not that God thinks our desires are too big, they're so small. He's so much greater, and he can satisfy in ways those can't at all. So guys, I'm encouraging you to desire that undivided heart that loves God, because everything else comes from there. And that's an untemptable position, right? That undivided heart. As we close, though, confess your sin, he'll forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Wow, so let's just leave it there. I want to encourage you guys right now. I hope that was an encouraging challenge, not a discouraging one. I'm encouraging you to love God more than ever before. Simply get your eyes on Him, right? Simply get your eyes on Him realizing everything else comes out of that. That's why Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, talking about not getting entangled in sin, says get your eyes on Jesus, right? Because everything changes from there on out. And temptation is destroyed. So we're going to have some time in praise, and I want you to experience God tonight and to desire Him and to delight yourself in Him tonight. So just take a few moments as we're praising God to just tell Him what He means to you. Let's turn off a lot of these lights and make this an intimate time with God. If you just need to pray and talk to Him one-on-one, do that. If you need to sing, do that. Whatever you need to do, this is your time with God.